morning. My name's Mark, in case anyone doesn't know me, retired truck driver, but more important, saved by the grace of God. Many years ago, and I was blessed to meet this man, so we've been close friends, and I've had some time to prepare for this, and I can't help but shake the thought that there is somebody particularly here today amongst us that the ministry of the word is going to have a powerful effect. Somebody in this room today, I really sense in my spirit, is going to come to God, is going to return, is going to be, there. I believe in my heart of hearts that there will be rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one of you today that is repentant. And when you're repentant, that picture in the scriptures, a picture of God himself, the heart of God himself, running, running to a repentant sinner, running. A sight you never saw in, in, in biblical times, an old man running, running and falling upon the neck of a repentant sinner and kissing him much. There's a verse in Hebrews that talks about the blood of the everlasting covenant. And I believe that scripture speaks of an everlasting covenant. That when the creation before angels, in the mind of God, this, this, this acorn, if you will, existed before all of time, all of creation, in an eternity past, if you can grasp that. And a covenant was agreed upon between God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as the, as the author, the preacher says here very briefly, in language that we can understand, thus ran the covenant in lines like these, I the most high Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten, well-beloved Son, a people countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall be by him washed from sin, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, I covenant by oath, and swear by myself, because I can swear by no greater, that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them will I forgive through the merit of the blood. To these will I give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. Thus ran that glorious side of the covenant. 
Think for a moment. How often? Think for a moment. Each day. God loved you. Loved you. Before eternity. Loved you. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't because you were he's looked down the channel of time and saw you were going to be better than anybody or you were going to be more wise or, or better a person or this or that. It was only because God loved you. We have nothing to boast of. Scripture says in 1 John 4, God sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus' own words. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the son came into the world, not to judge the world, but that the world, according to him, might be saved. I wrote down a few verses. I probably won't get to many. I, I have a problem trying to... But anyways, thank you for bearing with me. But... Um, Thank you. God, in times past, Hebrews says, spoke unto us, unto the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days has spoken unto us by his son. His son. What more could he have done? Who, who aided God? Who, in, in that in that eternal counsels, who was there to give him a counsel? Was anybody? If God put, if, if angels had been in existence and God put the question before them, I declare man will rebel. I will punish him. My justice demands it. But yet, but yet, I intend to have mercy. How can it be that righteousness and mercy can kiss each other? How can it be that God can be fully satisfied his justice? He can't compromise it. How can that happen? Do you know something? I believe, I believe that the angels, till this day, would still be sitting in silence. They couldn't have conceived such a plan. Sending his son. Isaiah tells us that I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it in, gathered out the stones thereof, planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. He looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done. Last of all, he sent unto them his son. 
saying perhaps, perhaps they will reverence him. This was his beloved son. When he came up out of those waters of baptism, and the, that it says the heavens, the heavens were opened unto him. Unto him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On that mount of transfiguration came a similar voice from God. Peter calls it from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What more could have the heart of God sent? What more could he have given but his son? Who? Here am I, send me, was his response. And after living, it, it's time is so flying by, after living that life, I do always those things that please my father. But he knew while he, why he was here. He, he, he was born to die. And in that covenant, we, who knows what transpired. We can only meditate what the transaction was. But when I, when I meditate and close my eyes and see that night, that he entered into Gethsemane when his disciples sought to protect him. Peter took out his sword. Peter said, put up, Lord said, put up your sword, shall the cup which my father gave me to drink, shall I not drink it? What was in that cup, my friends? What was in that cup of judgment? wrath. Oh, I feel the words fall so short. What was in that cup of judgment that his holy soul shrunk back? But he saw, he saw you and I. And they led him to the cross. It reminds me of in Genesis Abraham and Isaac. You find that phrase often in that they saw the Abraham saw the place afar off. And as they went up, Isaac says, Father, the fire in the wood. The fire in the wood. And it describes how they, they both, they both went together. Can you picture the father and the son both going to the cross together? father turned his back on his son. Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. And when Jesus took our sins upon his body, when God laid on him the iniquity of us all, and after those three hours of, of everything that man could possibly do to him, indescribable, he didn't, he didn't resemble a human being as he hung on that cross. Think of that. He was a bloody pulp. And then the, the very sun refused to shine on its creator. As God inflicted, I can't describe in language, the judgment 
that poured out over his holy soul. I can't comprehend the words how it pleased the Lord to crush him, to bruise him. He has put him to grief for you. For you. He put him to grief. It's like that part of Calvary that you and I can meditate on for eternity and enjoy everything we can possibly enjoy. But you know something? There's that part of Calvary that only God the Father can enter into. Sure, we reap the benefits, the eternal blessings and benefits. But you know, first and foremost, it was to the glory of God. We reaped untold benefits. But first and foremost, as he's laid down his blessed soul upon that cross in perfect obedience to the Father, it was to the glory of God. Who can imagine the heart of God as he inflicted such judgment upon him? Who can imagine? I can imagine all heaven silent as the sun hung on the cross. You know, in the, in the, it's, it's also found when God instructed Moses to make the, the, um, the holy um, perfume that it was to be an even weight, all the ingredients. And it says that no man, no one, nobody was to smell that perfume. It was for the Lord only. And that's why I believe in my heart that Calvary was first and foremost unto God. And was God, do you think God was infinitely, who can imagine God being infinitely satisfied in his son? In his son. It says in, in closing, in Ephesians chapter 1, that Speaking of God, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers. And I love that. Far above all, not some, not most. All principalities and power. Is there any higher place to be occupied in heaven right now that he's not seated in? Is there any? God highly exalted him. Can you imagine the heart of God as every, every fiber of his being, if I can reverently say that, was there in the resurrection of Christ from the dead? Can you fathom the, the, the awesome most Joy and, and just reverence and, and honor for my son whom I raised from the dead in, in response of what he did in laying down his blessed life. I commend it to you. Thank you.
come at this from a place of weakness. Um, question was posed to me over a month ago, what is the role of the Son in our salvation? And I confess to you that as I pondered this, I realized, one, I'm not a professional theologian. I have very much to learn as a young believer still. Um, I said that I felt like a toddler standing at the foot of a great mountain with many paths leading to the summit and each one providing a unique vantage point or before a massive treasure hoard from which it is granted to me to select one piece to take home with me for show and tell. What is the role of the Son in our salvation? John says so numerous are the works of Jesus that the world itself could not contain the library of books that would be produced from their writing. So does Jesus simply fulfill a role, play a part, and step aside? Not quite. The Bible says that when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He wears a coat of many colors. So manifold are his works from creation to the cross to the consummation of all things that perhaps nowhere else in scripture, to me at least, is his work more clearly stated than in Philippians 2. I'll try and be brief. It says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, or he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we see Jesus emptying himself, not of his divinity, but of his rights, his privileges, his advantages as the Son of God. Freely, willingly taking the form of a bondservant, which by definition had no rights or privileges. When he came into the world, he did not simply materialize as a fully grown man with mind and muscles already prepared, but rather he was born of a woman, the Virgin Mary, in the most humble circumstances. The first line, the line from that first song today, I just I can't hold it together. Word became flesh from my sin and death. You were tried, 
You were as I tempted and tried. You were human. I, I just, I can't hold it together in that line. Not in a king's palace, but in a stable. He was born under the law. He grew as a boy through adolescence, through teens, young adulthood, into mature manhood, in full, perfect submission to the law of God in all his thought, speech, and action. This stands in contrast to the children of Adam who resist authority from the first possible advantage and before long seek to establish our own rules, seeking our own path through this world, submitting only grudgingly to rightful authorities, all the while inwardly desirous to be princes, princesses, kings, and queens, masters of our own destiny, gods unto ourselves. Not so with Jesus, who came to fulfill all righteousness. Not one jot or tittle from God's law did he pass over. Not one stone did he leave unturned. Some have suggested that because Jesus was God in the flesh, therefore it must have been easy for him not to sin. But though while he was indeed fully God, yet he was also fully human. And he was tempted in every respect, as the song says in the scripture, Hebrews 4.15, as we are, yet he was without sin. Furthermore, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He submitted himself fully, humbling himself under the yoke of God's law, the burden that the Lord had laid upon him. A genius may do well on an exam because it is easy for him, yet he is still required to do the work, and especially so if the exam is completely interactive requiring critical thinking, engaging with real, complex entities in real time. It was in the midst of such a program where Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law of God. Though he was in the form of God, the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell bodily, he was himself the servant of the Lord. This fundamental truth revealed in scripture mystified the early church fathers. They pondered, how does God become enfleshed and yet not cease to be God? Unless we think them to be behind the curve in their theological acumen, ourselves having moved on from Newtonian physics to quantum mechanics, we ought to pause and contemplate the words of the ancient hymn King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood. The incarnate Christ filled to the brim of full measure what all kings, priests, and prophets in Israel had left wanting by imaging, ministering to, and speaking the words of God in sinless perfection. It was in this form of perfect humanity that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death on the cross. The servant of the Lord was the suffering servant. And it was the cross whereupon the death stroke against Satan was delivered. It is where God himself 
solves the problem of evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the last words he ever wrote, from a Nazi death camp, he wrote, only the suffering God can help. Those were his last words. God identifying with his creation, subject to death and futility, in the person and work of his son, performs the ultimate work of self-sacrifice in which he is glorified to the utmost. The cross is where heaven and earth intersect. God himself bridging the chasm which humanity, ever since we fell, have been trying desperately to traverse ourselves. To work our way back to God to no avail. In Jesus, God comes to us. He is our Emmanuel. And it is in his suffering unto death and his bursting asunder of the bands of death which could not hold him that he is highly exalted and bestowed with a name above every name to whom every knee will eventually bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth in whose name every tongue will confess as Lord to the glory of God the Father. For those who trust in him as Savior, Lord, and Friend, he provides justification, sanctification, redemption. He propitiates or appeases the wrath of God which our sins deserve. He bears our sins in his own body so that we no longer need to carry them as a grievous burden. He welcomes us into the family of God as beloved brothers and sisters with whom we share an inheritance. He delivers us from the power of death and the dominion of Satan, setting us free from fear. He restores in us our true humanity as our healer and great physician, making us whole again as we follow his prescription and plan of recovery for our lives. This is man-centered theology. The man, Christ Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In the Son, the love of God is displayed towards fallen humanity. In the Son, God gave everything. So how do we give thanks to him? Paul writes, Be therefore followers of God as dear children. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, preceding the verses which I read. It is clear that we do not get saved merely by following Christ's example. We are saved by humbling ourselves, confessing that we are sinners, putting our faith and our trust in him who came into the world to save sinners, whom Paul said he was chiefest. Yet we are not saved without following his example. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Last week, Brother Seth preached on the love of God. Because Jesus is God, we can safely say, in keeping with 1 John 4, 8, Jesus is love. Love is a person, not a force or a feeling. 
He has hands and feet. He has a face, speaks words. He that hath seen me, said Jesus, has seen the Father. Through Jesus, the heart of God is revealed. And through him, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, thrice holy God relates to us. And if you indulge me just for a moment, just one last scripture. Psalm, Psalm 104. 105, rather. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of them that rejoice, that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Thanks be to God for the victory. Thanks be to God the Son. Thanks be to God the Father. Thanks to God the Holy Spirit. What role did the Holy Spirit have in our salvation? Particularly, what role did Jesus have in the crucifixion of Christ? If Jesus had not come into the world and died on a cross, none of us would be here today. None of us would ever spend eternity with God. None of us would be able to call God our Father. None of us would be adopted into the family of God. It was the movement of God that brought life to us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, two simple verses, very profound. You can look at it with me on the overhead. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through, notice this, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. How dependent, what type of role did the Holy Spirit have in the movement and actions of Jesus to go to the cross? Have you ever thought of that? My brother was talking about the father, the role of the father. Stop for a moment and think. What was it like for the father to hear the prayer of the son in Gethsemane? Saying, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. We often look at it from earth to heaven, but let's stop and think of what it was like from heaven to earth. For the father to hear those cries of his son. Jesus says, which one of you who asked his father for a piece of bread... Will he give him a stone? And Jesus is calling out to his Father in heaven. Father, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. I wonder what kind of anxiety, if I can use that word, must have gone through the being of the Father. 
when the son is pleading with him, Father, take away this cup from me. It makes me cry because it made him cry. And we think of Jesus' tears. But what about the tears of God the Father? When he heard his son pleading, take this cup away from me. Thank God the son could say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Not mine, but thine be done. The will of me is to do the will of you, Father. You sent me into the world to do your works. All that you have told me, I have told them. Everything that you have shown me, I have shown them. And now the ultimate sacrifice time arrives. Where's the Holy Spirit in all of this? At Jesus' birth, it says of the Virgin Mary that the Holy Ghost shall call upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee and that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. Jesus' birth was because of the conception caused by the Holy Spirit of God. At his baptism, we know that when he came out of the water, the spirit like a dove came upon him. And what it says uniquely, unlike all other previous kings of Israel, I've been reading in the book of Samuel where Saul, it says the Lord took the spirit from Saul and the spirit departed from Saul. Then the spirit next is said to come upon David. David in his frustration and anxiety over the sin that he committed, cries out to God and says, Father, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He saw the Spirit taken away from Saul. His fear and concern and worry is, Father, do not take the Spirit away from me. That's not a Christian prayer, by the way. That's the prayer of a king of Judah who's crying out to God as a son to the Father, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. When Jesus was baptized and that spirit came upon him, the Bible says, and the spirit abode upon him. I believe it's the same Greek word as in John 14 when Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. For in my Father's house are many abodes, residences, dwelling places. The spirit could never dwell in any sort of residential way in any king or any person until Jesus came. The dove had to remain in the boat until the sun comes out of the water and then the spirit comes down and resides upon him. And John the Baptist says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hallelujah to that. The sun has arrived. The spirit has come in fullness upon him. And the scripture says, he giveth not the spirit by measure unto Christ. Christ didn't get the spirit like other kings had in measure but he got the Holy Spirit in fullness. Now we know how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit to move us. We need to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit of God within us. Without the Spirit, the Bible says, we can do nothing. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Why then did Jesus need the Spirit? This verse tells us, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? That phrase has to be there, that he offered himself by the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit, you could say, was propelling Christ. The Holy Spirit was active in the action of Jesus. This was the role that he was playing. Acts 10.38 says, God anointed Jesus with power and with the Holy Spirit who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. After his baptism, he was driven into the wilderness, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, tempted of the devil, and not one ounce of the Spirit, if you will, was injured, affected, and certainly did not depart from Jesus. There's a perfect man upon whom and in whom the Spirit of God can dwell in fullness. One who would never, like unlike us, who would ever grieve the Holy Spirit of God, who would quench the Spirit of God. Here was a perfect vessel, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. It's interesting. If we can get the verse before up, verse 13, I want to draw your attention to something because... I have to confess, I have looked uh, hard in, uh, through the scriptures, basing some of it on my memory of passages and trying to find others to discover what does the Holy Spirit have to do with the ministry of Jesus? I've mentioned a few of them to you. Another one, I, obviously, is when Jesus opened up the scroll of Isaiah and says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And he was able then to break the bonds and to set the prisoner free and to heal the brokenhearted. But what about the cross? We read about in Acts chapter 1 after his resurrection that he through the Holy Spirit gave commandments concerning the kingdom of God to the apostles. We can read in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse Verse 18, for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he, may be, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, or made alive by the Spirit. So the activity of the Spirit is almost more attributed to the post-crucifixion activity than the duration of the atonement being performed on the cross. Though the Spirit was obviously indwelling Jesus at the time of his crucifixion, did not depart from him, but served Christ in many capacities, and we just don't have answers to exactly how the Spirit of God operated in the life of Christ. But it is interesting to know that the Spirit was integral in the life and ministry of Jesus and even led to, as that verse had said, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. It doesn't say how much more shall the blood of Christ, and skip those words, cleanse you from dead works and so much. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without spot to God. So that Christ would be in unable, I have to put that in, in sort of a, parentheses, unable because the scripture says that he did it through the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now I recognize that some commentators would say that that's Jesus' personal spirit, the eternal spirit in him. I disagree with that uh, strongly. I believe it's referring to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God in Christ. But we have significant reference to the Holy Spirit 
raising up Jesus from the dead. We know that Jesus said that after his resurrection ascension, that God, the Father, would send another comforter. Now this is where I, I, I think we have to draw our attention to verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, what, what is that referring to? There's one significant place where the heifer is mentioned. And what chapter is it? I know you know. What chapter is it? Numbers chapter 19. The red heifer was taken outside the camp. The red heifer was slain. It was dissected. It was brought, the blood was brought by the high priest back to the tabernacle. Its blood, the blood was shed and then from the ashes of that heifer became then a useful purification for the children of Israel in the future. So that if there were any that were defiled, the way the defilement would be purified and eliminated would be by the ashes of the red heifer with the running water over those ashes. I want to suggest to you that Jesus' death on the cross was like the death of the red heifer. The blood was provided in the tabernacle, if you will, to the Father for acceptance. This is my beloved Son. This is the precious blood of the Lamb of God that is shed, that satisfies me, we, a holy God, against putting wrath and judgment upon my people, those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, the Holy Spirit takes what was presented to the Father. He takes the finished work of Christ, like the red heifer that was slain outside the camp, and it's not coincidental that Jesus died outside of the camp, which, he mean, which means he died outside of the perimeter of the city of Jerusalem. That's where he was slain. The blood was brought in like it was presented to the Father for his acceptance. The work has been done. Here we have it. My nature, he did it, I didn't do it. By one man's disobedience, Adam's, many were made sinners. By the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. Now how do we get that righteousness? The ashes of the heifer, the Holy Spirit of God takes it and brings it right down the, 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 the tunnel of time and
to the sinner that will believe shall everlasting life receive. It's a powerful thing when you think of the activity of the Holy Spirit. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, you would be dead in your trespasses and sins. You may have religion, but if you don't have a relationship that's been created by the power of the Holy Spirit. We were reading, our brother was reading in 1 Peter chapter 1 about how he has caused us to be born again. Hallelujah. He caused you to be born again. We should fall on our face and say, thank you, Lord. I'm a guilty sinner. I don't have one ounce of love for you. I would never have sought you. But the Holy Spirit sought me out. The sanctifier, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. The eternal Spirit worked for us by bringing to us the reality of the cross of Calvary. Isn't that powerful? That's what the Holy Spirit of God has done in your life. You know why Jesus means as much as he does to you? You know why it makes us cry when we hear Jesus crying Gethsemane, when we hear his cries on the cross, when we hear about his exaltation that our brothers have mentioned, given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. We who know Jesus can say, hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus is mine. He died for me. Has he died for you? If there's anyone here, I don't care if you're a church member. I don't care if you claim to be saved for 40 years. Have you ever been born again to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Can you say, he died for me, my Lord and King? I'm guilty, hell-deserving, but the Son of God loved me, Paul says. And can you say, gave himself for me? We're going to sing, I think, shortly. Glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. Glory to the Holy Spirit. Thank God for this amazing plan that God designed before time began. And if your heart is not moved as we think of the victory of all things this Thanksgiving week, and this is what kind of this special message is about, thanksgiving to God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God for the victory that is in Christ Jesus. The hymn writer said, I have been to the altar and witnessed the Lamb, burnt holy to ashes for me, and watched its sweet savor ascending on high, accepted, O Father, by thee. And lo, while I gazed at the glorious sight, a voice from above reached mine ears. By this, thine iniquities are taken away, and no trace of it on thee appears. An end of sin has been made for thee there by him who its penalty bore. With blood it is blotted eternally out, and I will remember it no more. O Lord, I believe it with wonder and joy. Confirm thou this precious belief while daily I learn that I am in myself of sinners the vilest and chief. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. And above everything, Lord, that we have so much to be thankful for. We have wonderful children, families, neighbors, friends, 
brothers and sisters in Christ, a church body of people. But most of all, Father, this week of Thanksgiving, help us to be reminded, Lord, that the thing above all to be thankful for is thankful for you. Oh, God, without you, we would be helpless and hopeless, destitute, dying, miserable, hateful and hating one another. But thank you for the miracle of salvation that you wrought. Father, we adore you. Jesus, we adore you. Holy Spirit, we adore you. Three in one, receive our praise in the worthy name of your beloved Son, Jesus our Savior. Amen.